This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. A new documentary charts the cases and causes of celebrated human rights lawyer and friend of Zoomer, Erwin Kotler. I talked to him about his groundbreaking career. And the best of our interviews with beloved former Mississauga mayor and force of nature, Hazel McCallion, a week after her death at the age of 101. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Older adults in France are taking to the streets in greater numbers this week to protest pension reform. Nearly 1.3 million people joined in nationwide protests, more than the numbers a week earlier. It's the latest clash of wills with the government over its plans to raise the retirement age up to 64. This week's nationwide strikes and protests even on tiny islands, are a crucial test for both President Emmanuel Macron and his opponents. A growing number of Americans are getting their power shut off as rising costs of living force consumers to choose between keeping the lights on and paying for food, rent, and medication. In 2022, utilities cut off power to an estimated 4.2 million households, a 30% increase from the previous year. And this was the result of higher costs caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as well as the end of pandemic-era protections that barred utilities from shutting off service for non-payment. Here at home, utilities are banned from disconnecting residential customers for non-payment during the winter months. Hong Kong banned CBD this week, categorizing it as a dangerous drug and mandating harsh penalties for its smuggling, production and possession. But supporters say CBD can treat a range of ailments, including anxiety, and that unlike its more famous cousin THC, which is already illegal in Hong Kong, CBD doesn't get users high. Cannabidiol, derived from the cannabis plant, was previously legal in Hong Kong, where bars and shops sold products containing it. Residents were given three months to dispose of their CBD products in special boxes set up around the city. So what drives our political preferences, be it left, center, or right? Tel Aviv University researchers say political views can be predicted by brain activity. In a first-of-its-kind, researchers studied the brains of dozens of politically motivated participants while they watched campaign ads and speeches by parties from both ends of the political spectrum just before the last round of elections in Israel. The MRIs found the brains of right-wing participants were synchronized while they watched right-wing stimuli, whereas left-wing participants' brains were stimulated when watching left-wing stimuli. In fact, 
The response was enough to predict an individual's political orientation. Real life grandmothers and home cooks I call pasta grannies. With a new video. They're called grandfluencers, and according to a Sprout Social study, their time has come. These older influencers are using social media to debunk the myths about aging and also to do good. Among them is 73-year-old Amar Kaur, who has attracted a large multi-generational audience cooking meals in her family's courtyard for about 100 children in her Indian village. One of her grandsons shoots the videos and runs the account. The word is... Grandfluencer popularity comes from showing the world you can love the age you are and still be relevant. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. We meet at an important historical inflection moment today. That's a clip from the documentary First to Stand, The Cases and Causes of Erwin Kotler. Our audiences know him as a former justice minister currently serving as a special envoy to combat anti-Semitism. Kotler, above all, is a renowned human rights lawyer who set a template for freeing political prisoners, going back to his first case, Soviet dissident Anatoly Natan Sharansky, who was imprisoned in 1977. I reached Erwin Kotler in Jerusalem. As a journalist, I was familiar with all of these stories, but not so much on how they all interconnect. So, congratulations. Well, it's, it's, the initiative was really the producers, so they're the ones who put it all together, and I was a very uh, reluctant participant, I have to tell you. Let's go back to the beginning. And I remember as a kid going to demonstrations for Soviet Jewry and to free Sharansky. And I found it really interesting how you use the case of Soviet dissident Anatoly Sharansky as the model. So tell me a bit about that. Well, actually, that was uh, the first case that I was in- engaged you know, by the family of a, a, a political prisoner. I took up this case in cause and got involved with it when approached by Abigail Sharansky. And Anatoly Sharansky, as is then known, was not only a, a political prisoner, but he was the embodiment of the struggle uh, for human rights in the former Soviet Union. Not only the struggle for Soviet jury uh, to emigrate, but he was at, at the forefront of, of all the struggles. He was one of the founders of the Helsinki the Final Act. He was went down the line for other uh, political prisoners. He represented ethnic and um, religious right movements. So Sharansky, as I say, was the, was the embodiment of the struggle uh, for human rights. And I thought that uh, engaging with him uh, was really being at the core of, of the human rights, one of the great human rights struggles of the second half of the, of the 20th century, the other being uh, the struggle against apartheid. And the course of being involved in his case in cause, I developed then uh, the advocacy model that I've almost been using ever since. It was a 10-point advocacy model, which I won't bore burden uh, you or your listeners with, but that became uh, really the touchstone for the development of human rights advocacy. 
One of the really interesting moments is when you talk about a conversation you had with Mikhail Gorbachev about this case, and he said that he hadn't even heard of it in Russia, and that he decided to let Sharansky go when he realized that was in Russia, the Soviet Union's interest. I was on a panel uh, with Gorbachev uh, in 1987, some year and a half after Sharansky had been released, and I was intrigued as to uh, Sharansky being released so soon after uh, Gorbachev came to power as the president of the Soviet Union. So I, I, I put the question to him. I said, um, you know, Sharansky was in prison from 1977 till 1986. Uh, you became president of the Soviet Union in 85, and he was released within some seven months of you becoming president. I said, did you have anything to do with it? And his answer was uh, remarkable, because uh, he said, you know, uh, this may surprise you, he said, but uh, I never heard of Anatoly Sharansky when I was in uh, the Soviet Union. I know he was a household word in Canada and Nelson, but I had not heard of him. He said, uh, I came to Canada on my first trips outside the Soviet Union, and I came to testify before the Canadian Parliamentary Committee on Agriculture. And yes, they asked me some questions on agriculture, but they kept bringing up this, this Sharansky. I then left the Parliament buildings, and there was this big demonstration for this Anatoly Sharansky. I then was the guest of your Minister of Agriculture, Eugene Whalen, at, at his home. And he, too, while we talked about agriculture, kept bringing up the Sharansky case. So when I became president of the Soviet Union, I ordered up his file. He said, yes, he was a troublemaker, but he wasn't a criminal. And then came the, the key that he said, but it was costing us. It was costing us politically. It was costing us diplomatically. It was costing us economically, to keep him in prison. And so I ordered his release in our self-interest. And that's when I learned that political prisoners, to secure their release, it's not enough to show the compatibility of the justice of their cause. You have to get the, the those who are imprisoning them to realize that it's in their self-interest. That became, for me, the tipping point of human rights attitude, the press that button of the tipping point. The other thing, or one of the many things I found interesting, is that you said one of the things that marks a lot of these prisoners who are successful is that they have a spouse who is advocating for them. That's right. I mean, if I took the, the line of, uh, of cases, uh, whether it was uh, Sharansky and having Avital, uh, who became his, uh, really his advocate while he was in, in, in prison, while he was uh, the voice, uh, uh, the identity of the human rights movement, the former Soviet Union, she became his voice once he was in prison. The same thing with regard to uh, Nelson uh, Mandela, uh, who had uh, Winnie Mandela as his voice. The same with regard to uh, Raif Badawi, uh, now in uh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, South Haida, his wife, uh, who's in uh, Sherbrooke, uh, Quebec. And so there's a pattern uh, that we're, uh, those who are in prison have their spouse advocating on their behalf. Uh, they give a human dimension uh, to the case, and they elicit a compassionate understanding uh, from the publics amongst whom they, they make their case. 
Erwin Kotler, thank you so much. And uh, thank you for participating in this documentary that was so enlightening. Not at all. I'm good speaking with you. That was Erwin Kotler, the documentary First to Stand. We'll have a one-time screening later today, February 5th, at the Hot Docs Theater. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, the best of our interviews with the late, great Hazel McCallion, who passed away a week ago. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. She was a force of nature, a legend and an icon. Hazel McCallion was a rare politician who was beloved as well as respected. She also epitomized aging well, remaining engaged and relevant until she died last week at 101. Here is some of the best of the interviews I did to mark her 100th birthday. It's been an exciting life. I've had good health, which is so important. The many experiences, the people I've met along the way, many of them have been such great assistants. Because you don't do it alone. You don't accomplish anything really alone. It's others that can help you. So it's been a wonderful experience. You've broken many barriers, but you were even a professional hockey player. Yeah. Well, my brother worked in Montreal, and then he came home to set up a business in our hometown. And he brought me a pair of skates. I was only five at the time. My two sisters skated and played hockey. So we had a a league on the Gaspe Coast. And uh, then when I graduated from Quebec High School and went to Montreal, I heard about a a league at Montreal of, of female hockey. So I decided maybe I should try to see if they would accept me. I had a tryout. They accepted me. So that's how I played professional hockey in Montreal in the league, paid $5 a game. And by the way, the team that I played for was Kick Cola. That was <laughs> I the, remember Kick Cola well, in Montreal. Kick Cola was the name, uh, the company that sponsored my team. I have two big bottles of Kick Cola sitting in my kitchen. Speaking of your education, you couldn't go to university because you couldn't afford it. You went to secretarial school. Yeah, no, I couldn't. My mom and dad uh, couldn't afford to send me. I said, I got to do it on my own. I couldn't go to university or college, but I was determined that with the education I had and with looking to others to help you along the way, that uh, you could make it. I got involved with the Streetsville and District Chamber of Commerce. And the mayor of Streetsville invited me to join the Streetsville Planning Board in 1965. And so I did. I became chairman of the board. And then I was encouraged to run for office, which was a quite an undertaking because there were no women on the Streetsville Council. What was it like running at a time when women were not encouraged to be in politics. Who who mentored you in that way? And You know, when I ran for mayor of Streetsville, the women 
voted or worked hard against me because they couldn't understand how a woman wanted to get involved in a man's world because all the members of council were men. It's interesting the difference, and I use this. In 1978, when I ran for mayor of Mississauga, it was the women that made a major contribution to getting me elected mayor. So there's 1968 to 1978, the difference. A few months after you were elected mayor of Mississauga, we had that big, horrible train derailment. It was a challenge, but, you know, I had good support from so many people and supported the entire community. People left their homes that night in their night clothes without their uh, medications, etc. And we were able to get drugstores opened up to provide them with their medication. It was so well managed. And secondly, we communicated. Communication was a lot of the success of the Mississauga derailment. We kept the people well informed. We told them how serious it was, but we didn't exaggerate. And we didn't, in fact, we monitored the press to make sure that the information got out to the people correctly. As a result, it became a Mississauga miracle because nobody lost their lives, even though chlorine was a very deadly item to be in the, in the community. I covered a number of your elections. Maybe coronations would be a, a better word. People really loved you. You have to uh, appreciate people. I love to be with people. And you have to make a contribution. You know, you were the longest serving mayor in Ontario. I think that you have been surpassed by a guy named Krantz in Milton. Well, Krantz has uh, been mayor of Milton, the town of Milton. I was the longest serving mayor of a city in uh. Canada. But I was also three years mayor of Streetsville. So I served for 39 years as a mayor. He's still in office, so he could exceed all those years. But I'm very proud of what I've been able to accomplish. Hazel, some final thoughts? Well, I can still uh, shovel my uh, walkway to the house, and I go out in the yard and exercise every day. I do my own gardening. I do my own housework, uh, vacuuming, etc. You got to stay active. You can't sit around doing nothing. Hazel McCallion, thank you so much. That was some of my interview with the late Hazel McCallion. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.